This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Good evening and welcome everyone to Christchurch, our evening Bible study as we continue to study the last words of Moses. We are currently wrestling in um, chapter 15. Uh, last week we studied the issue of the forgiveness of debts and today we're going to finally know what to do with my Hebrew slave. Um, I've got a few and I've always wanted to know what to do with them. So today we'll, we'll get the opportunity to figure out what we're supposed to do. So before we do, let's honor the Lord by reminding ourselves that he is in our midst and to give him the glory. So brother, never would you be able to pray as we begin our study. Yeah, certainly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to set aside to come before your word. And Father, thank you for the promise that your Holy Spirit would be with us to guide us and teach us and to reveal things about you, O Lord Jesus, that we would not otherwise understand. Thank you, Lord, for the richness of your word. Thank you that we can always learn from you. We pray you bless and inspire Aaron in the things that he says and in all the things that we discuss. Uh, that you may have the glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, for those that um, don't know or would like to follow, um, Christchurch has a podcast of, on their sermons. And last week, uh, Neville, who's an ordinary in the Anglican tradition, uh, uh, gave us a sermon um, on, uh, on uh, the gospel portion. So please, if you would like to have a look at it, it's great. It's a good on who do you say that I am up there in Caesarea Philippi. All right, but let's focus today on Deuteronomy 15. So here is last week's uh, discussion on the 11 verses uh, that, we, that we wrestled with, which is the initial part, um, on the cancelling of debts. Later on, we call it the, uh, the Shemitah. So here's our summary. The forgiveness and cancelling of debts uh, was actually common and widespread in the ancient Middle East, but was almost exclusively the prerogative of the ruling monarch. So the ruling monarch would, in his empire, forgive debts when he wanted. In preparation for a just society reflecting the character of, of God, Moses takes that exclusive power away from kings and he puts it in the hands of everyone. The notion being, if this is important to God, it is now important to you. As Moses states categorically, this is the Lord's release, or Shemitah in Hebrew. The cancellation of debts was to be based around the religious calendar cycle of seven years. This command of debt cancellation is new to Deuteronomy. That is, the law for the cancellation of debts is not found in the previous books of the Torah. Leviticus 25 designated the Jubilee, that is, the 50th year uh, period, seven of sevens, to be the year of release. Property is to be returned if loaned and redeemed if sold back to their former owners. In Exodus 23, that discussed the laws for the following of the land in the seventh year. There is no discussion on the issue of release. Instead, the topic in Exodus is work, in which the land will mimic 
this, the weekly Sabbath work week of humans. Okay? So now the land will mimic humans. We are to work six days and then rest, uh, as is the land that we rule over. It is not called the Shemitah year in Exodus or Leviticus, only in Deuteronomy. Moses is taking the 49-year jubilee cycle, okay, the seven by sevens, and the agricultural Sabbath year system, he joins them together and he forms a seven-year release of financial obligations. Verse 3 makes a distinction of loans between Israelites and between foreigners. The cancellation of an owed debt was not applicable to the non-Israelite. Those non-Israelites needed to pay up anyway. The foreigner was still required to pay his debt. Now we see this same application of distinction in the New Testament, in which Paul suggests that should we have opportunity to look after the house, we should look after the household of faith first and only afterward to those that are outside the faith community. That's in Galatians 6 verse 10. This lesson has unfortunately not been learnt in many churches today. Our priority for appropriate use of our resources should be to alleviate suffering within our communities first and foremost, and then should we be so blessed to give to the secular world. God was establishing an economic system on a national scale that would ensure, if this was carefully obeyed, that there would be no chronic poverty in the community. People would still make bad choices and potentially become poor. However, opportunity for redemption and a chance to start over again, hopefully having learnt from previous mistakes, would come around every seven years. Joining in with the rest that joining in with the rest that the land would also be enjoying. The emphasis here in Deuteronomy is actually not on the land. That's the focus of Exodus. The emphasis in Deuteronomy is on the financial burden of humans and the alleviation of that burden. Verse 6 notes that the blessing God gives Israel will overflow to other nations. Israel will be able to lend them financial and material support and thus have influence over them and not the reverse. The law had created the possibility of a situation in which Israelites were disinclined to lend to the poor due to the approaching Shemitah year. God wanted Israel to be generous and not to think this way. Thus, in verse 9, there is introduced the possibility of being found guilty of sin in not being charitable to the poor. Exactly what this sin is and its nature are not defined. The deliberate vagueness of the sin leads one to delve into the heart nature, the spiritual law of generosity. Later, this is explained in Proverbs 19.17. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. God wanted Israel to be generous, 
And they should always, they will always be poor. But charity and love will be greater than all of this. Summed up in a verse from the Talmud. Ten powerful things were created in the world. Mountains are hard, but iron cuts through them. Iron is hard, but fire melts it. Fire is strong, but water extinguishes it. Water is strong, but the clouds bear it away. Clouds are strong, but the wind scatters them. Wind is strong, but the human body can contain it. The body is strong, but fear breaks it. Fear is potent, but the wine dispels it. Wine is powerful, but sleep makes it go away. And stronger than all of these is death. But love, love delivers from death. That was a summary from our, our, uh, our discussion last week on how Moses had introduced the, the uh, seven-year cycle for the cancellation of debts. This was a brand new law. How he had, had pulled uh, the, the jubilee year from Leviticus with the seven-year rest of the land, put them together, and now had created uh, a new rule for the people of God that every seven years you would cancel your debts and you would look after the, uh, the, the Israelite in your, in your home. So let's have a look at the rest of Deuteronomy, which now concerns the freeing of slaves and uh, what to do with firstborn animals. And then, and then let's try and apply that to, uh, to the community today. How does this affect us? as believers in the Messiah, knowing that this sacred scripture and all scripture is God-breathed, all scripture is useful for doctrine. So how do we use this to make uh, a doctrine, particularly with slaves? Deuteronomy 15, beginning at verse 12. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. And that is why I give you this command today. But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you now, because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, take, then take an awl and push it through his earlobe into the door, and he will become your servant for life. And do the same for your female servant. Do not consider it a hardship to set your servant free, because their service to you these six years has been worth twice as much as that of a hired hand. And the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. Set apart for the Lord your God every firstborn male of your herds and flocks. And do not put the firstborn of your cows to work. And do not shear the firstborn of your sheep. Each year you and your family are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose. If an animal has a defect, is lame or blind or has a serious flaw, you must not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You are to eat it in your own towns. Both the ceremonial clean and clean may eat of it. 
as if it were a gazelle or a deer. But you must not eat the blood, pour it out on the ground like water. All right, so our usual first question. Is there anything there from an initial surface reading that was new, jumped out at you, or something that you always kind of notice? When Aaron, the very last verse, I've just seen it, is uh, you shall pour the blood out on the ground as like water. Is there any connection with Lord Jesus when they put the spear into his side? And then his blood poured out like blood and water together. Yeah. Could be. Could be. Yep, I, I don't know, but it could be. It's interesting about the blood and the water because um, when, you know, in, in, in Hebrew, it's from the side, when Adam, uh, when Eve came out of the side of Adam, yeah. I think it's Tesela, right? Something like that, Tesela? Is that the right pronunciation? I'm not sure. But anyways, so from the side, and that was the first bride that came out from the side. And then later, um, you know, when, when uh, Yeshua, when Jesus went to the cross, and water and, and, and uh, blood were poured out of his side once again from the side. And that's uh, interesting because with the blood, you know, he's, he, um, he's in a sense... Um, he sanctified the wife. He, yep. he redeemed the wife, the new wife, and he washed with the blood, washed with the water of the purification of a new bride, which would be the church, um, you know, the kehila, the believers. So I think that's so interesting. The whole concept of of the well, blood. Well, well Yvonne, I'll I'll let you know. Um, that'll preach. Okay, that sounds like a good sermon right there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when 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 you see these words. Uh, appear in scripture there's got to be connections not always do we know what they are initially but yes there's, there's got to be connections so we keep looking we keep searching we keep preaching and uh, that sounds like a good sermon right there Aaron go for it Roddy um, we need a Hebrew speaker here just something to consider I, I think that the word servant and slave are two different words in Hebrew they are. And it comes into play because for lots of different reasons. Yeah, um, so the word um, servant, oh, sorry, slave is eved, and the word servant is sakil, which, yeah. um, uh, come, which where you get the word uh, mashkira, your salary. Okay, so the idea that you might have a servant, but he actually gets a salary, he gets paid for his service, he's getting a financial reward, whereas the eved, is not, okay? He, he's not getting a financial reward for his work. So you go from a slave to a servant when you take the awe in the ear? Yeah. And we're servants, we're slaves to the Lord? Uh, unfortunately, the Greek word that Paul uses is doulos, which we will talk about when we get to it. What does it okay. mean to be a slave to God? Um, uh, because that's what, that's the way Paul describes himself. So, uh, 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 any, anything there that, um, I, I, for me, how's this? Um, when, I, when I read this passage um, during the week, and, and again this morning, um, I was struck again by this firstborn animal idea. You know, you often go to the priority of the firstborn, the firstborn are great, you know, the firstborn sons they tend to inherit, blah, blah, blah. But 
What do you do with the firstborn in, uh, in, the, in the Bible? You eat them. So it's not such a good idea to be the firstborn, in case anybody didn't notice. And, uh, and not only that, even if you're a defected firstborn, that doesn't save you. You just can't get eaten in Jerusalem. You get eaten in whatever town you were before. You go, oh, that, uh, I'm, I'm going to skip the idea of how great firstborns are, um, being firstborn my, myself. It's only animals. Yeah, it's only animals. But it is, I always thought that uh, they were the, the, the golden trophies, but they ended up not lasting very long. Okay. And they had a very short life. So it wasn't sure, great with, to be... With children they were redeemed. So you know, the, the Lord requires them to be redeemed. Yeah. The, the Pidyan Haben, right? The redemption of the firstborn. Yes, the Pidyat Haben, um, which is uh, um, the buying back, which is still a thing you do today in Jewish tradition, uh, which we did for Micah when he was born. Uh, Aaron, well. just, uh, one thing that I noticed, that I think it's probably just a quirk of my translation, the ESV here, but the first verse says, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, yeah. like you can have male and female brother, mm-hmm. I think that uh, <laughs> it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, mm. okay. That's because um, the the... the the ESV is doing its best to be faithful to the original text. Because yeah. it says, ki um, uh, so when, if you buy lacha, achecha, your brother. So it literally does say, your brother, and then it switches, ha'ivri, which is the um, Hebrew brother, masculine, or ha'ivriya, uh, or a female Hebrew. So, so the ESV is trying really hard to be faithful to the actual Hebrew, which is interesting. Wow, man, this ESV is getting better and better. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Hey, how's it going, Chimchon? Ah, very good. Thank you. Um, the, the concept of um, not consuming blood seems to be recalling all the time. It shows yep. that how important it is for God and um, especially for God's people not to partake in blood, um, especially when we, um, especially in today's world as Christians, many of us, we, we assume that the, the element of the communion actually turns to blood itself, uh, you know, in some, in some tradition. They say, yeah, when you lift it up, it actually becomes the blood of um, Jesus. And uh, in fact, in Catholicism... Um, I really do think that, yeah. They really think that, and um, you know, that's why you don't chew the bread because you feel it turns into the um, flesh of Jesus, and you don't chew the baby Jesus, so you have to lick it or something like that. So, um, but yeah, of course, it's very, very clear that um, even in that concept, we should not really think in that concept of consuming blood. Um, you could see it when um, Yeshua preached a sermon, and he says, "Except you eat my flesh or drink my blood, you're not part of me," and you know. Um, the text says that after then, most of his disciples left him because um, it was very strange for them to hear that because even though he wasn't speaking directly, but they were taking it as um, verbatim as he has spoken. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yes. Uh, it is unfortunate that because in Jewish tradition, there is lots of this mystery in their own talk. But, but, but some of these guys took that quite literally and they, they, they ran away, yeah. which is a bit of a disappointment. 
hopefully some of them come back. Well, <laughs> you know, I have a question uh, in this is that, are they really then a slave or are they really an indentured servant because they get paid at the end and they're also then bound if they choose to stay with, you know, the enlarged earlobe, yeah. um, that they're still paid, though. Yep. So they never really become a slave. That's a good, a good observation and question, uh, all at the same time, Stephen. The yeah. issue of slavery, now that's a big one. I mean, that's what we're going to talk about. Okay, let's, let's, let's just get it out there. Slavery. Can we or can we not do it? Because um, our societies um, have had slaves for an incredibly large amount of time. And we have, we were, we were you know, put this in word, close quote, you know, Christian nations for thousands of years before we abolished slavery. Now, why did it take us so long? Um, Probably because the Bible doesn't say explicitly, thou shalt not have slaves, which that's actually a true. There is no statement in the Bible that says thou shalt not have slaves. There are, there's lots of different verses. And, um, and so the abolitionists in the 1800s, these are our little British, British boys, because unfortunately America was a bit behind the ball game on getting rid of slaves. But the British people were arguing about it before. And uh, you had these um, Christians on both sides of the camp standing in Parliament, debating Bible, throwing Bible verses at each other about whether you could and couldn't own slaves. So it was a, it was a, it was a, a big issue. But... I think I've got a feeling that, um, as Roddy's also alluded to it, some of the Hebrew does, does help us a little. So um, let's start with this. In context, slavery was a common practice, yes, in antiquity. Um, the national history of the Jewish people includes slavery. What were they for 400 years? Right, they were slaves in Egypt. So the national memory, the Jewish people, is steeped uh, in slavery. But slavery in Israel, or the rules that seems to show up in the Torah, appears a little different. So uh, when you have the Ten Commandments, God comes down and he introduces himself as I am the Lord God who did what? Took you out of the land of slavery. Correct. That is what he says. I took you from the land of slavery. And so then you get these Ten Commandments. That's in chapter 20 of Exodus. Exodus 21, that is the very first series of commands that, that God is giving to his people post Ten Commandments deals with slaves. So that is interesting. So God says, I am the Lord you God who took you out of slavery. So after I've given you my Ten Commandments, my Big Ten, and we need to start talking about some of the fine minutiae, the very first thing we're going to talk about is what to do with slaves. So let's jump in 
and have a look now, go all the way back to uh, Exodus 21, because this is the, the background stuff. Moses should know this because he said it, okay? oh, albeit 40 years ago, and maybe he's forgotten somewhere along the way, but it's there. And we're going to have we're going to read Exodus 21, the first 11 verses, and then verse 16. Okay, so Exodus 21, verses 1 to 11, and then 16. So these are uh, the first things God says after the Ten Commandments. Right. These are the laws you shall set before them. If you buy a, a Hebrew servant. He is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife, when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children, and I do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door, to the doorpost, and he shall pierce his ear with an awl, and then he shall be a servant for life. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as a male servant does. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, she must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. And then in verse 16, Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. Okay. So what do we see there about the initial, uh, initial issue of slaves? Is anything, anything, uh, anything of note? Possessions. Okay, they're possessions. Okay, that's one thing. Yep. And if you buy. There you go. That's an interesting one. It starts if you buy. Yours says servant. Yes, my, my version says servant, but it, it, it's ESV. Eved. Yeah, ESV is correct because it actually uses the word Eved, not uh, mm. Sahir. Okay, so we're actually buying a slave. So once I've bought the slave, I'm not paying the slave. Okay? There's a yeah, difference. They're, they're running away from the Egyptians, yep. being um, chased, and all of a sudden, within a year, they've got to worry about selling each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I mean, you would think Jewish people would be better at money than this, okay? But, um, but there you go. Yeah. Is, yeah. Also, it seems that the Lord doesn't seem to have a problem with you selling your own family. Yes, I know. Yeah, no, you're right, David. That's a, that's a good point. Um, but it only appears here in Exodus. And so there's a difference between what's here in Exodus and what's there in Deuteronomy. Now, the first thing we notice 
uh, Roddy, you mentioned it, buy. You can purchase a slave. So the slaves are there for a reason uh, to buy. What is the rule that you can't do to gain a slave? Kidnap. Exactly. Yeah. You can't kidnap one. Okay. So, so the idea of slavery, which is the traditional idea of slavery, you know, you run to a country, you knock someone on the head and you drag them away from that other country and you sell them into slavery. That's illegal. Not only that, the guy who did the kidnapping, what do we do to him? Put him to death, okay? Because what's one of the big ten commandments? Thou shalt not kill. Thou steal. shalt not steal. Aaron, might, might I ask a question? How about the Gibeonites? The Gibeonites? Are these the guys that um, came, came to Joshua and tricked him into, yeah. 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 Yeah, there you go. So somehow they they managed to uh, circumvent the, the the rule to annihilate these people by becoming by becoming servants. That's a that's a, It was a good trick by them. When you think about it, Aaron. <laughs> yeah. Aaron, I'm I'm reading in my stone humash in the commentary bit that um, there were two ways in which a Jew can become. They they translated it as bondsman. He yep. can sell himself as an escape from extreme poverty, yep. and the reference is Leviticus twenty-five thirty-nine. Or yep. he may be a thief who is sold by the court to raise funds to pay his victims. Um, and he said this passage, this is the Exodus one, refers only to the latter case. Yes, so the, there are three cases in the Torah, the first five books, as to how you can gain a, a slave. One is you purchase them because of poverty. They have gotten themselves into, into bankruptcy. They can't, pay, they can't buy food anymore. There's, there's no way that they can live. So they sell themselves into slavery. The other way is he's a thief. Now, why are we purchasing a thief? What does the thief have to do? Has to pay back what he stole. Right, so what he's doing is he's now working for nothing to pay back his his um, stolen property. And the other one is, which we appear in, in Deuteronomy, the, the um, if you go into debt, okay, you can. So there's this. There are three ways. One is to one is to go into poverty. One is to go into debt, and one is um, uh, to be a thief. But you can't capture one. Right. That's that, that. So so now. It's not that the Torah, the Bible doesn't forbid slavery. The Bible forbids certain types of slavery. Okay? So there's now a difference between, between slavery and slavery. We're not talking about going away and capturing people against their will. We're now talking about slavery that's actually something you, 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 uh, you, you choose to do. If you're a thief and you're caught, you have to pay back. But if I can't pay back, then I have to go into slavery. But it's still a willingness because otherwise I have to die. So you know, which one do I want? Um, so and the same with the, with the captive women, with the captive wives, later on yeah. on chapter 21, verse 10. 21, verse 10? Yeah. It says if they choose to, they can choose to be your slave wife or whatever you want to call it but in, if, if they don't book? then they die yes deuteronomy yes. 21 
Yes. So in the future, so 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 you you're putting into a point. I also want to talk about. Uh, excellent, Bernardo. In Deuteronomy, Moses introduces the idea of a female slave. In Exodus, you haven't got one, right? You just have male slaves. Women can be given to male slaves, but they don't get free after seven years. They stay the property. Once you get to Deuteronomy, Moses is shifting it. Moses is saying, look, I've had 40 years. I've looked at this. No, the society doesn't work this way. Male and female slaves are actually equal, which is a, which is a, a, a huge shift in the, in the wanderings in the wilderness, okay, is that um, uh, uh, the, the things that Moses is saying to prepare the people for the future is that I want you to treat men and women the same. That's, a, that's an incredible deal for late antiquity or early antiquity, late antiquity. No, the late antiquity is back. So, uh, all right. But there, there it says Sorry. that at the end of it, it says that if you don't want to keep her as a wife, you must sell her. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have already dishonored her. Right. Yep. So she has all kinds of rights in Deuteronomy which is what, remember, what, what is Deuteronomy trying to do? What is Moses trying to do with the people of Israel before they enter Canaan? He's trying to set up an incredible just society that reflects the character of God. Mm. And uh, uh, that's what makes Deuteronomy such a powerful book and probably why it was so influential in the Second Temple period and most quoted of in the New Testament. So in, in Exodus 21, Moses has already said, we can get slaves, right? Uh, here, you have to buy them. You cannot capture them. So we now know where slaves come from. Okay? By the time we get to Deuteronomy, we don't, we don't rehash this. Um, uh, the same idea of if the servant wants to stay, you do something with his ear. Any idea why that, that is? I, I, I yeah. don't know that uh, I'm not sure. If, uh, it's interesting because in Deuteronomy, it says that you shall... Um, you know, pierce the ear at the, at the dalet, at the door. But if you look at Exodus 21, it says at the door, at the mezuzot. So you pierce yes. it at the doorpost. And then there's that recollection to Passover, where you also do the, uh, the blood, you know, that idea of the piercing at the, at the mezuzot, at the doorpost of the slave. Then you have that recollection of blood and the Passover with the blood uh, on the mezuzot. So it's interesting. And then the idea of, um, you know, being a slave for all of eternity. And uh, so in a sense, we're the, we're the dolos, we're the, we're the ones that pierce our, our ears to the mezuzot and we uh, obey his commandments and that's for all of eternity. So I think it's a very interesting whole concept of the piercing, the mezuzot, the blood, the slaves, yep. you know, are his dolos. Covenant somewhere along the line. Um, yep. I'm not sure why Moses changes the language, but uh, or why we still have to pierce the ear in the first place. But for some reason, it's got to be a reason. It's there. You just got to keep asking why. So good stuff, Yvonne. Aaron, I'm seeing here that, that the idea that they are rejecting the, the, the fact that they were delivered from 
Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts. And that's in, why... In Deuteronomy? That's why, but, uh, yeah, well, that's, that's what it's saying in Exodus, for the right. Exodus bit, that the all is, that it's pierced um, at the doorpost for that reason. It's because they have rejected. It says, and the Jew who prefers to be a servant of a human master rather than owe his allegiance entirely to the one master has rejected the lesson of the doorpost. Ah, in, okay, in that's, that's Chumash teaching, that's Rashi, is it? Uh, it just says Kiddushim, Kiddushim oh, 22b. Okay. Yeah, so, so what Therese is mentioning in, um, in, in Jewish commentary on, on the Exodus portion is um, the rabbis delving deep and they're focusing in on what you mentioned, uh, Yuvon, is that you were freed from Egypt, you were meant to be free, so any mm -hmm. slave who remained a slave, he's just obviously rejecting his freedom and hasn't learnt the lesson from the yeah. Exodus. Um, yeah. that's, that's a Jewish commentary. So yeah. it's, a, it's a good one, but it's not the mm. only one. No, um, no, I know. No, yeah. No. Uh, but yeah, so, so they're also looking at the idea of the Mzuzot as well and focusing it back to the redemption from Egypt, which is what you were doing, Yvonne. Yeah, and it's interesting because when they, I don't know if you'd mentioned this before, I had heard this maybe from one of the teachings, but when they left Egypt, they were slaves. I mean, we're slaves to somebody. Always. <laughs> so, when they, you know, when they leave Egypt and they leave the servitude of, of Pharaoh, then we become slaves and dolos. We become servants and of, of you know, of of, of, of God, of Yudhivavi, Yahweh. You know, I mean, so it's just it's just shifting. I mean, it's we are under a good bondage. You know, the yoke. It's he gives us a, the yoke. It's, it's it's a light. It's a burden. It's a different burden. But we're still slaves. We're still. We have a master, and in the sense, of course, the law is in the heart, so we do it out of love. And that's why when they, he said, you know, let them leave so that they can serve me and they can worship me. So in a sense, it's just a shifting from one master to another. It is. The idea that, yes, you leave bondage in Egypt to bond yourself and bind yourself to God. You leave a yoke under the taskmasters of Egypt to take upon yourself the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. The same theology you see in the New Testament. We are slaves. And I guess for us as believers in the modern world where we don't like the idea of slavery and individualism has so infected our culture that to turn around and say I'm a slave to, to God uh, is anathema to most, most secular people in this world. Uh, yeah, they yeah. would reject that idea. Mm -hmm. They would say, no, no, you should be able to do what you want. And, you know, you, you take the shackles off and be free uh, without knowing that in so doing, they're binding themselves to another God, uh, a very dark one who's very That's cunning. Amazing. Yes, and That's his amazing. voice is so subtle. And, uh, and so they end up binding themselves in, uh, into all kinds of, they, they, they bind themselves, not just binding themselves to sin, they bind themselves to fake relationships, they bind themselves to, uh, to a, a perpetual life um, of servitude to a culture that will never reward them for being a good citizen. The, the, in fact, Aaron? Yeah. Um, just to buttress the, the point you just made and also what um, Yvonne said, um, because if you look at the word Eved, 
it's it's um, translated slave, and in some places it's translated as worshiper, as in your day, it's translated yep. as worshiper. So when God was saying to Moses, um, when Moses was speaking to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can worship me, so that they can be my slave, literally, in the literally. wilderness. Yeah, yep. yeah. So right. let them stop being your slave so that they can be my slave. But of course, again, another thing I want to point out on the on the slave thing, um, just like you said also, when people hear the words, when, when people make such statements like I'm a slave to God, in today's culture, it's, it's, it's very repelling and people don't really embrace it. And um, one of the reasons is that the picture slavery in our modern day world, um, in that time, just like it says there, it's not a gang of um, slaves that are going to work in a plantation. This is somebody that is going to live with his master is going to eat from his master's um, kitchen, is uh, going to be housed in his master, is going to be taken care of in, in so many ways. And um, they are going to pay for his service. Even though it's, um, if we look in, um, in Exodus, it say he can go without getting nothing. But it says when you acquire, when you, when you acquire the slave, either you acquire it by him paying for his um, crime, like maybe if he's a thief and he's paying for his crime, then he becomes a slave. Or if he decides to sell himself, he's going to get money or his family is going to get the money on his behalf. And yeah. you could see it in the life of the prophet. Uh, this name of the prophet was not mentioned, but his wife went to Elisha and was saying, oh, yes, uh, the servant, the prophet, he, he was a good man, but now the creditors have come to take his children because he was owing. So it's a way for the community then. I mean, they, they don't have other ways to to hold somebody ransom to, to the money, to get paid, and somehow maybe they didn't have a bad debt kind of system there. So these children have to pay, they have to be taken as slave, and the equivalent will be for the money or something like that. So it's, it's a different picture from the gang of slaves that goes into the plantation. And Absolutely. Are, you know, Absolutely. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's a totally different type of slavery. It's yeah. the same word, but it is yeah. very different intention. Yes, yes. Yes. You can't. I find it interesting one. that in our New Testament, doulos most of the time is translated servant instead of slave. And I've been told that that was because um, even though slave would be more accurate, we're so opposed to that word. It's mm. much more palatable to uh, think about serving Christ mm. than being his slave. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah you're probably right. You're, you're probably right. Yeah. But don't forget what Yeshua says. What does he say, Roddy? He says, to knock and it shall be opened. Yeah. The door. The door? Your ear, door, all. Yes, doorpost with the blood all over it, the way the slave bashes his ear to. Yeah, it's a good connection there, Roddy. And, the, and he said he's the door, so he described yep. himself as the door also. Yep. Yes, that's right. So if we're going to be a slave to God and we have to shove something in our ear, it's going to be up against the Messiah himself in that metaphorical type of yeah. way. Very good. So um, just, just, just to finish off with the Exodus passage, um, the, the lady that uh, in, in Exodus, the men and the women are viewed a little differently as they are in, in Deuteronomy. Um, in verse 9, oh, sorry, in verse uh, 10, it says, uh, if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of food, clothing, and marital rights. Okay, this is where you get the rabbinic injunction that uh, in, in modern Judaism, which has been running around now for a couple of thousand years, 
that um, uh, women are allowed to demand three things from their husbands. Okay, they they so a, a wife can demand three things. He she can demand food. Okay, so she can go to a husband and say, you know, go out and get a job, you lazy guy, because you've got to put food on the table, because you have to give food to me. She can demand clothing and or shelter, like. Give me somewhere that I can stay warm and a house and whatever, and give me marital rights. Right? You often get this idea that it's a you know patriarchal society and men are running around demanding sex from everybody, but it's actually the reverse. In uh, Jewish tradition, it's the women, okay, and uh, and and men uh, twice a week uh, are not allowed to say no, okay. Uh, Tuesdays, because that was the day of double blessing, according to creation, and they're not allowed to say no on Shabbat. And, but uh, so they get that those that rabbinic idea from this verse, and uh, uh, and the and the verse in sixteen, if you kidnap someone, he has to be put to death. This idea that that slavery can't come from kidnapping is one of the key verses that the abolitionists used in their argument against slavery in England. So for those of us who are part of CMJ, you remember a guy called William Wilberforce, do you, Roddy? Yep. yep. Yes. Yep. So he would have been, he, Palmerston, and those other guys, they all would have been standing in British Parliament and they would have been quoting this verse in the good King James English to show that the slaves that have been brought to England are illegal according to the Bible. Okay, this sort of idea that uh, you've kidnapped them and you can't, they're not real slaves, they're something else. Okay, there is another uh, book, Leviticus, number 25, which has a few verses which also deal with uh, slaves in a slightly different way. Moses, again, obviously is familiar with these words, seeing as though he said them. Okay, so in Leviticus 25, starting at verse 39, we're going to read something a little different. Then we've got to put it all together in trying to figure out what Moses is saying to the children of Israel as they go into Canaan. Verse 39, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, right, not knocked on the head, sell themselves, do not make them work as slaves, right? Eved, they are to treat them as hired workers, sakir, or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. This is this, the Jubilee would come around once every 50 years. Um, but uh, you were not supposed to have them as slaves at all. Then they and their children are to be released and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. They must not be sold as slaves. This is part of this national memory that Israel has. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. Ooh, so you can have slaves, you just can't have Hebrew ones. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, isn't that an interesting distinction? Leviticus brings in this very interesting distinction. All right. Uh, From them, you can buy slaves. Buy. 
Again, you can't go over to the Edomites and while they're not looking, dunk them on the head. Okay, you only can purchase them uh, properly. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country uh, and they will become your property. So there is this essence of property that you can own them. Okay, you can bequeath them to your children, oh my gosh, as inherited property, and you can make them slaves for life, but you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. So there is a distinction, and we talked about the distinction uh, last week in the cancelling of debts, right? Cancelling of debts within the household of faith, that we make the foreigner pay everything. Okay, so there is, uh, in, in, in amongst the community, we have to make sure we're taking care of, of, the, of the believers. If a foreigner residing amongst you becomes rich, and if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to the foreigner, okay, or to the member of the foreigner's clan, they retain the right of redemption, okay, after they have been sold. So there's this, there's this definite idea that we've got to buy these people back if we can. One of the relatives may redeem them. Uncle, cousin, or any blood relative of their clans can redeem them. Or if they prosper, they can redeem them themselves. They and their buyer are, uh, are to count the time from the year they sold themselves up to the year of Jubilee. Uh, the price of their release is to be based on the rate paid for a hired worker for that number of years. So the slave, Ebed, is not actually treated like a slave. He's actually treated like a hired worker. What Moses is doing is something a little different, because okay? he's shrinking the time down to seven years. We don't do the 50-year thing. We do that too, but, but, but we're going to shrink it down a little more. Uh, here, it's definitely in relation to payment. We don't do Hebrew slaves. Um, okay. Uh, all right. So that, that'll, that'll do on that one. So in Leviticus, um, Hebrews are not meant to become slaves at all, and there's no mention of females. Right? Leviticus does not talk about if he gets a woman, if he comes alone, if he, goes, if he gets a woman uh, while the master gives him one, um, uh, th th that's held in, in, in Exodus. Leviticus just simply says, we don't do Hebrew slaves. We only do indentured servants. Uh, now when you get to Deuteronomy, we've had 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. We're setting up ourselves to go into, uh, into the new world. God knows that not everybody is financially astute. Some of us just make dumb choices, okay? You know those guys who send out the emails that say, you know, I was walking down the road and I found a whole pile of diamonds. If you give me your bank account details, I'll send you millions and millions of dollars, <laughs> right? And there are some people who are so dumb that they will go, oh, my gosh, I can't believe the Lord God has blessed me. And they just send all their information and wonder why their bank account suddenly went into the minus. <laughs> um, unfortunately, guys, sometimes that happens. And God already set it up. He said, yeah, I know some of you guys make dumb decisions, but it can't be that you stay that way for the rest of your natural lives. So every seven years, you get a reset. Now, in Exodus... When you set your servant free, your slave, what do you do? You give him anything? No. no. You keep the woman. 
But when you get to Deuteronomy, let's have a read of the rules. So now we're into Deuteronomy 15. 15 verse 12. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, we're now bringing in that slaves can be male or female and making a distinction. If they sell themselves to you, okay, in, in you can only purchase slaves and they serve you for six years, whether they're paying back a debt, whether they were impoverished, whether they were actually thieves and trying to pay back a debt to society. Okay? In the seventh year, you must let them go free, even if they haven't paid everything. It's actually, the, if the, even if they haven't managed to clear their debt, doesn't matter anymore, they now go free. And when you release them, what does it say? Do not send them away empty-handed. Moses is bringing in a very compassionate uh, addition to the Torah. You don't leave them uh, alone. In fact, verse 14, supply them liberally from your flock and your threshing floor and your wine press. So obviously the people who own slaves uh, do so because they can have the money to purchase them and they've probably got some sort of business going. Um, give to them as the Lord God has blessed you. So when it's time to set the slave free, okay, you say, listen, I really appreciated the, the last uh, six years, got to know you, you and your, your wife and your kids. Um, I hope you've learned something uh, in your time with me. Time to go off and make your own fortune. Um, so here's, here's six cows and, you know, four sheep and, and you, you load them up so they don't go off by themselves. They do not start impoverished because if they do, they're going to end up being a slave again and there'd been absolutely no point. So uh, Moses is being very careful that, no, our society doesn't work that way. Uh, if they go and make dumb decisions and blow all the sheep and cows you gave them, well, that's on, on them. You can... They get sold back into slavery. They haven't learned anything, but hopefully they have had a chance to learn. And, uh, and because of the national memory uh, of the Jewish people, verse 15 says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. And that is why I give you this command today. Um, Question, Aaron. Um, I remember Pharaoh when he, you know, he was, he, Moses was asking to, to let them go and and so first go the men and then you know don't leave the women and, and children the, the whole thing where you know he wanted to separate the families and, and at the end they all went together so then the question is why in Exodus as you know you had mentioned they're leaving empty-handed why couldn't they leave just as the Lord had willed for them when they left the Exodus now, uh, you know, being indentured slaves or, or what, what, whatever, uh, you know, the idea is there, why couldn't they also leave with the families? That's a good question. Okay, I'm going to, I've got a comment, but before I comment, I'm going to open up, guys. Any ideas why Exodus and Deuteronomy are a little different? Any idea why in Exodus, when we're fresh out of slavery, we don't talk about providing them with anything. We don't talk about them taking their women and children. Uh, any ideas? They're destitute anyway. Sorry? But they, they, they don't own property. Uh, you know, they don't have their own way of making money. 
So it's a, a currency zero <laughs> yeah. economy. Okay. I would suggest one one factor, which which may be quite relevant, is that throughout their wilderness wanderings, the Lord provided manna for them, so no one was going to starve. Right. But go. in Deuteronomy, he's looking forward, and bad decisions can you can go right to the bottom. Yeah. That's a good point, uh, Neville. I hadn't hadn't thought of that. That's true. The situation between Exodus and Deuteronomy is indeed incredibly different. In, in Exodus, when the children of Israel left Egypt, did they leave without treasures? No, no. They, they bought stuff from the Egyptians. Yeah. Correct. And so there's already a pattern of as the servant leaves, you get loaded up. So in Exodus, it, it might be... That, that sort of idea was already there and they should have known it, can also be, exactly as Neville said, when the guy walks out the guy's tent, he just looks around and goes, oh, oh yeah, there it is. And he can pick up manna and he's perfectly fine. Um, so he won't actually starve. Um, once you get into Deuteronomy and we're entering the land, the Deuteron uh, I think it's, is it uh, Joshua? Or, or one of the texts says that the manna stops as soon as you set foot in Canaan. Yeah. Right. And uh, so that you have taken sin is that he hoards something that no one else has. Say that again, Stephen. With taken sin, you know, oh, yes. buries, and so that's contrary to what the structure is in the wilderness. Yes. Yeah. And he gets, and his sin is marked out in the text for, for forever because it was so against. Yeah. Sorry, Aaron. Do you think it is also because now they've been to, firstly they come out of Egypt, they're together as a whole community tribe, and yep. now they're going into a promised land to inherit, and they're going to break up into their different allocations and portions, and so they're not got this leader like Moses that was with the um, the elders over them. Although their concept with elders should still continue, but they're going into the different so. Moses is trying to get a deep into their spirit what God expects them to do because they really got hard hearts. Yeah, I think you, yeah, I think you've also hit the nail on the head there, Vida. Um, in the wilderness, they've got their nice charismatic leader. Once they get into Israel, they're going to break up, and there's probably a little bit of trepidation inside Moses, going, "Oh my gosh, what's going to happen to these people when I'm gone?" Uh, because he gives them a, a prophecy, you know, which we'll get to in, in chapter 18. There's going to be one like me who comes. But I don't really know when that's going to happen. And so he's really desperate to make sure that he sets up the heart of the Torah for his people. Okay. All right. So. Just a real quick. So, yeah, they leave with, uh, they do leave with wine and flock. But they still don't leave with the, the wife or the children that they the children that they had together during slavery. I guess that's the issue that still... Oh, no, they do eventually. They all get sent. Pharaoh didn't want to send them, but Moses oh, argues. No, no I, and I, yeah, with Pharaoh, yes, but uh, when they were, when they were uh, slaves... Oh, in, in Exodus, house. yes. In uh, Exodus. Also, I, I don't... I, from what I read, apparently, they just they don't leave with the families. So and, in Exodus, if the, um, oh, if the slave comes to be married... 
he leaves married. But if he comes to you and the master gives him a wife, then, then the wife that was the master's property actually stays his property. Um, I'm not 100% sure how that work plays out in real life um, uh, or why some servant would, would want that to happen, but um, all I can say is ain't love grand. It's quite amazing what people will do when they're madly in love with, with other people. Um, and, uh, and so uh, in, in back to Deuteronomy, in verse 16, now that we have to release our prisoners, remember when this is the Shemitah, this is the Lord's Shemitah, the Lord's release. First time Moses is, is using those words. We're releasing debts and uh, now we're also releasing slaves and we're doing it in a little different way. Um, we're doing it in an expounded way. Uh, if your servant says, but I don't want to leave, right? I mean, oh my gosh, what the, what? You've got your opportunity for freedom and you won't take it? Um, because he loves you. Well, that's an interesting thought that this emotion can actually uh, become a bond between master and servant. Now, normally, when we use the word slavery, no one would ever say, oh, slaves fall in love with their masters. That's, that's just going to happen. Right, um, we call that Stockholm Syndrome today. We call that Stockholm Syndrome. Yes, this is a negative term. We make movies about it. We get psychologists to come in and talk to people. Uh, uh, the Bible says, well, we don't do that. We don't call the shrinks. Um, if he loves you and your family, okay, now, you know, not just, not just the master, but the whole household, you know, I love you, I love your kids, I love the way you do stuff, I love your family traditions, I love the way you sit around a Christmas tree and open uh, up your Christmas presents and drink hot chocolate, it's fantastic, I want a piece of the action. Um, uh, he, and, he, and he's well off. So he's also himself has been actually accruing some small portion of wealth. Because remember, in, in Leviticus, can't actually have Hebrew slaves. In Leviticus, actually have to pay them. Right? In Exodus, you just can't steal one. You can buy one. But in Leviticus, it switches it a little and says, actually, if they're Hebrews, you don't actually call them slaves. They're actually getting income. And, uh, and in, and in um, Deuteronomy, we switch that over to, to men and to women. So there's a little bit of a, tr a tr transmission going. Aaron, can I just comment on Yvonne's uh, comment about yes. breaking up families? I think it's, it's better to look at the situation that, you know, a slave wants to marry and that the master has an eligible girl. Um, but the slave knows the deal there. Basically, what's part of the package is that you're going to marry this woman that, who, who is in my household. Basically, you're marrying into my whole household and you're not going to leave unless yeah. it gets really bad. So, I mean, that's the choice the slave is making, which is a perfectly valid one. Yeah. I mean, it's not, he's not marrying and then suddenly the, the master changes the laws, changes the rules and says, oh, no, you can't leave and take your wife with you. So it, it's a choice that the, the man-slave is making up front. Say, okay, I feel comfortable enough with my master, the way he treats me, actually, I want to, want to build my own family under his roof, or, you know, under his canopy. 
Yep. Good point, Neville. Thank you very much. Hello, Aaron. Just to 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 chip this in there. Um, we have a culture that is very close to that in, in Nigeria. Um, oh, yeah. In fact, it's very popular with the to the Igbo, um, which um, says that they are they are very they are the people that claims uh, more to be from the tribe of Gad, the lost tribe of Israel. And um, the Israeli have people that will sell their children or will send their children to go and stay with uh, a, a merchant, and it will lend the trade. It will. Um, um, be taken care of, and sometimes they pay his education and do everything. And then we serve this person in that form of master slave for a particular time. And after he's been there for quite a while, then his master will establish him. We open the same kind of business for him somewhere else, and he will continue in, the, in his own life. So it's, um, it's something that we are very used to here. And so it's not really seen in that. Um, in a very negative light if people, you know, kind of sell themselves into slavery. Yeah. Although they don't call it slavery. It's just right. that you're going to serve somebody. That's the word they use locally. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks, Shimshon. That was good. In our, in our Western culture, um, when people go into bank, bankruptcy, we have a very, very similar biblical tradition, although they probably won't acknowledge its foundations. How, uh, guys, how long? Do you suffer bankruptcy penalties for? Does anyone know? Year seven years in Brazil. <laughs> Correct. You're seven where, years here. Yes, the average across around the Western world, seven to ten years. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yes, with the majority being around seven. And you go, why is that? Where did you get that number? Somebody goes into bankruptcy, they file for Chapter Eleven, and then the bank's penalties are. After seven years, you cancel it. Where? Okay. Well, you're looking at a very Judeo-Christian uh, foundation to our societies that actually has a very real um, application. Okay. So there is an element of choice, as Neville was saying. Um, the slave who wants to marry a woman, he has a choice. He knows what he's doing. And also, the slave is given a choice. Hey, time to go free. You have fulfilled your obligation. The Shemitah year is coming. The land is going to rest fallow. My time uh, to send you free is done. I shall send you out with, you know, here are these gifts and things. The slave now gets a choice. He can turn around and say, um, don't want to go. And why would he not? Uh, what's the caveat here? What is it that has attracted this slave to you? Love. Yeah. An emotion, yeah. um, which is very interesting, is that uh, uh, there is this, uh, let, let's put it into our life with God, that we, Paul calls us, and we probably should have the same thoughts, uh, we are the doulos of God, we are a slave to God. But just because that word is used, does not nullify the emotion of love. It is possible to fall in love with God, who is a king, who is your master, who gives you commands, who has rules, who has strict rules. There are punishments, there are blessings, and yet there is this possibility that given the opportunity of choice, 
the slave can turn around and say, actually, I don't want to leave. I'm actually now in love with my master. I'm in love with uh, the way you rule over your household and your community. And, uh, and I'm in love with your family. So in relation to us and God, who would we be in love with? Fellow believers, right? I'm in love with the church. I'm in love with the people sitting next to me. I'm in love with the household of faith. I love the way God chooses and woos and redeems and buys, right? How do you, how do you acquire a slave? You purchase him, right? You buy him. Uh, what are we bought with? Blood of the lamb. Right. The very expensive price. And so there's this element that, that the master has indeed purchased people who were impoverished. We had done, we had, we had gotten ourselves into all kinds, we owed God a debt. And in fact, when you get into uh, the New Testament and they begin to quote the Ten Commandments, uh, it doesn't say forgive us our sins. Uh, it actually says forgive us our debts. Okay, there was this... Yes. Okay. It actually says, forgive us our debts. And there they're thinking about, I owe a debt. I physically owe a debt to God, uh, which I can never pay back. And, um, and yet, so there seems to be this time when uh, we get this choice. Do you want to stay with me, Aaron, or do you want to leave? And, uh, and obviously, hopefully, Aaron turns around and says, I don't want to leave. I'm actually in love with you and I'm definitely going to stay. And uh, I think your family is fantastic. And um, I am so much better off uh, being your slave. And, so, uh, Aaron? Yes. Uh, when we're doing the liturgy, it's, uh, we always say sin. But yeah. if it's written debt, and now that we have this discussion, debt is uh, pretty good. I yeah. Like debt. As yeah, it, yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, it, the word Why sin we, and debt, I mean, it's, you, have to have a, you have to have a good discussion to understand what you mean when you say those words. So, I, so uh, yes, um, when, when, I, when I think of um, uh, the, the liturgy, I often also try and remember I owe, I, I owe a debt that I can't pay back. But it's then taken care of after the Shemitah. Yes. Very interesting. Bernardo, you have a hand raise. Yeah. Is that a while ago? It's really noisy here. I don't know if you can, if it's too noisy to talk. Oh, we don't hear anything. We're good. Oh, good. Um, I, I, I was reminded of the story of the Moravian missionaries who went to the islands and they say they sold themselves, but they, they didn't really sell themselves as, slave, as slaves. They just went there as missionaries and started to work along the slaves. But they weren't actually um, property of the slave masters. Okay. So in, rela in relation to uh, our walk currently, okay, um, when this, in, according to Deuteronomy and in what's going on in our lives, once you do the, once you say to the master, I don't want to leave, how, how, um, how permanent is the relationship? It's, it's permanent. Okay. Um, 
Well, was, I heard that that it was fifty years maximum. Right. Okay. That's that it was like seven sevens. Jubilee, yes, in relation to the jubilee. But here yeah. in the text, it's he will become your servant for life. Okay. So Moses is is saying that no, this thing is a long time. And he adds again in verse 17, that little caveat, uh, do the same for your female servant, okay, which was not made clear in Exodus and Leviticus. But Moses wants to make it clear here. Okay? He's had some opportunity to watch what's going on in the, in the community in the, in the desert. And he knows that when you get into the future and I'm not around, uh, when, when we're in, in Canaan, it's for all, it's for both sexes. It's you know, male and female servants. We, they're, they're the same. That's a pretty big deal in the ancient world. Aaron, you get the impression that in, in Deuteronomy, Moses has had to adjudicate in the difficult cases that have been brought before him. And he's actually realizing, I can... I can clarify things here. I can, I can say something about individual difficult situations that will avoid arguments in the future. Yeah, uh, that's what it looks like. It looks like he's had, he's had 40 years of experience. Yeah. And, uh, and there's a lot of wisdom being yeah. put into this text. Okay, so uh, after dealing with um, servants, Evedim, slaves, and uh, males and females, and the setting them and setting free of them in connection also with the debts and the Shemitah, we now move into this um, idea of firstborn animals. Not 100% why they tack that on here, but no, Moses... I, Aaron, can, I, can I just uh, ask one other question or make one yeah. other observation? Uh, the beginning of this passage and also in the Exodus one, I get the impression that we're talking about a slave can be retained for six years and then released on the seventh. And, but that's a kind of ro rolling series of years. So not related to the release at the, um, the seventh year. But it, any, so it says clearly, you, he shall serve you for six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And it says the same in Exodus. So it looks like that, that could be, you know, if he, if he becomes your slave, slave one year before the jubilee he's still going to stay with you six years and then on the seventh year he'd be free now is that what is 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 that the understanding that's taken from that or am i uh that's right on the wrong the, the jubilee is irrespective of your time so if you have a slave in year 48 and then you come to year 49 he works that year but in year 50 he's done um but prior to that it, it still revolves around a seven-year cycle, but it's... it's. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, so the Shemitah year doesn't apply to the, the slaves. This guy. Yeah. Just, just the Jubilee year. It's in the same passage, uh, holding on to the seven-year cycle and the idea of release. Okay, so now we get to firstborn animals. Um, so set apart for the Lord your God every firstborn, male. So... Previously, we distinguished between males and females, but when we get to the idea of a sacrifice, we do not. Now we only go back to the male again. Any idea why? I, I don't know. I, I didn't find a good commentary. There were a few ones that I just sort of dismissed out of hand. Um, uh, well, 
the idea is that you'd kind of want to hang on to your female breeding animals for, for breeding stock. Oh, breeding, yeah, it could be. Yeah. Yeah. Could be purely, yeah, it could be purely that. They're just worth more, actually. Women are worth more. Do you hear that, ladies? There you go. All right. All right. So we get these, um, we get these firstborn, and being firstborn isn't such a good idea, okay, even though it comes with the idea that they might be the best, but they're not going to last long. Okay? They're going to peter out uh, real quick. So uh, do not put the firstborns of your cows to work, okay, so they get a really cool life for uh, a while. Um, and don't shear the firstborn of your sheep. That is going to mean he's going to get really hot in summer. But doesn't matter. Um, you probably won't keep him around for that long. Each year, uh, it's only a yearly thing then, each year you and your family are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose. So the two places we have, Shiloh and uh, Jerusalem, these firstborn males um, who do not get to do any work are then consumed. Um, so obviously the idea of first is special. Firstborn was the best. The best is given to God. Israel is the firstborn. You know, all of those themes uh, put together. Uh, Yeshua being the firstborn and all of that thing, although he himself was indeed put to work. Okay? He worked hard. He, he got his disciples and taught well uh, and did lots of miracles. So this is actually in returning just animals. So if an animal has a defect or is lame or is blind or has any serious flaw, do we throw it away? No. You still eat it. You just can't do it in Jerusalem. <laughs> okay, so for some reason, the idea uh, uh, that when you came to God in Jerusalem, you only brought the best. That doesn't just, uh, exclude the fact that a sacrifice didn't belong to God anyway. What do I mean by that? Okay, so I'm going to sacrifice a, uh, my goat, and, I, and, I, and I'm living in uh, the Galilee. So I go out into the field, and I take my firstborn goat, and I say, okay, um, you're, I've been caring for you for the last nine, ten months, so it's time to go to Jerusalem, and I discover that it's got a, a chip on its hoof. Well, I can't actually sacrifice it anymore, but I can't keep it either because it's not mine anymore, right? The instant it's, a, it's the firstborn, so it has to be given to God, either in the place where God chose, which is Jerusalem, or I can eat it at home. Um, but what does this teach me? What do you think it teaches me, guys? What is it? What is it? What am I learning from this commandment? Any ideas? Everything has a value. I don't know. Okay. So yeah. So in this case, was he referring to the tabernacle uh, location or, or was he foreseeing Jerusalem? Oh, both, I think. Yes, I think it's both. He's got the tabernacle functioning with him now, but we learned from, I think it was De uh, Deuteronomy 14, 
where, where or 13, where Moses had said, just don't do what we've been doing in the wilderness because obviously we've been doing it wrong, which you scratch your head and go, oh, my gosh, what have you been doing for the last 40 years of that? Um, there was something about the way that they did it in the tabernacle in the desert Moses wasn't happy with. But once we get to Shiloh and once we get to Jerusalem, the only things you bring before the Lord are perfect. And uh, what does that teach us about God? Expects the best. He expects the best. I like the way, Aaron, that this is emphasized in Malachi, you know, that he, the prophet is making the point that you wouldn't present your governor or whoever with uh, an imperfect animal for, for a feast. And the Lord never says why he insists on, you know, perfect, perfect quality sacrifices. But we, with, in, in retrospect, we realize Every sacrifice that it is required of echoes the perfection of his son. Yep. And, but the Lord never needed to say that. He just gave a rule, and one day you might find out. Yep. And, I think, and I think also, uh, you know, he wants perfection, but again, it's a matter of the heart. So wouldn't we want to give him what's the best? Wouldn't we want to give him the perfect offering? One would hope so. One would hope that that's exactly what we wanted to do. But so anything that's that. impure can't be around him anyway. It's that's also true. That yeah. Nothing that's impure cannot be near him. Impure or death, he can't handle either of those things. Those those are not to come into his presence. So, but God, Aaron, if I'm correct, even the blemished is the firstborn, right? Yes. Somehow, it still belongs to the Lord God. Excellent point, David. Yes, that was excellent. You, you bring God the best because he is the best. You bring God perfection because he is perfection. But even if you're not perfect, even if you've done something wrong, even if you've got a few bruises and you're rough on the outside, you still belong to the Lord. You are still the firstborn. You still cannot be used for anything else other than uh, an offering to the Lord. You just got to do it in your own home. But that, that still teaches you that you're valuable, that, okay, I, I, I blow it. I'm not the best thing on the planet, you know, but I'm still going to be uh, of, of value to God. I'm still the firstborn. I'm still part of the sacrifice. And as Paul says, present your bodies as living sacrifices. And I'm sure that when he said that to the church in, uh, in uh, Rome, okay, that they were full of people who were very blemished, and uh, but they were going to be living sacrifices. Mm. So uh, I think that's a very good thing that um, that we're learning, or that we can learn from this little little section. All right. So in the in the just just to spend a few minutes, let's try and apply this to our community today. Remember, all Scripture is God breathed for the creation of doctrine and and, and stuff for our community. How should we treat each other, guys? How should we treat our, our staff? How should we treat our departing staff who have served us for a while? Um, how should we treat staff that don't want to leave, <laughs> even if we want them to leave? <laughs> is, there, is not the sense of gratitude is at the root of it? 
of, of what the master has provided and the master himself towards God. Okay. I'm sure that has an aspect to it. I'm sure that's one aspect. There's never going to be one answer. So we, what else? Like, let's just throw out a few things that we can learn. So let's let's dignity and honor. Dignity and honor. There's another good one. Okay. Let's treat our treat our workers, those that work for us, those fellow workers, those fellow servants, and those that are under us with dignity and honor. Okay. What else? With justice. With justice. With justice. Okay. Let's treat them with justice. Okay. And kindness. Kindness. Irrespective of gender, there's a good one. All right. Males and females serve and they are treated exactly the same. Respect. Okay, that's a good one. What else? With provision. Provision, that's right. Yeah, that's right. We compete. Everybody, workers deserve their wage. Let's make sure that we, um, we don't impoverish people, that we're actually blessing people and giving them a good, decent, decent wage. Okay. And with love, huh? And with love, there's a good one. Yes, and maybe we can actually create a, a very special relationship with our staff that actually goes beyond uh, master servant or uh, you know owner manager and worker. Perhaps as believers in our communities, people could look at us and go, "Wow, they, they, they like those, that restaurant there, Chick Fil A, that treats their staff just a bit different from Burger King." All right, they like family. And that's a, that's a good one. Yeah, I like that. There's a motivation for the people who are rich to live with integrity and generosity. And actually, it'll rebound to them that people will want to come under their protection. Yes, that, uh, they'll become known as good masters. And people will say, I want to get a job with you because I've heard you treat your people well. And, and, I, and I want that blessing uh, as well. Well, the other thing as well is that if you treat your people with respect, they will respect you and they'll actually work. They'll give better quality work for you as well. Yeah. Yes. I was going to say there was a, a survey a bit back talking about people who stay at lower paying positions and they were more likely to stay at a lower paying job rather than take uh, another job that paid more because their boss treated them well. Is and that right? There you go. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and so the conclusion was people quit bosses, not jobs. People quit bosses, not jobs. Ah, I like that one. Yes. So brothers and sisters, you know, we need we can learn from this. Okay, it's stay this this Torah, this teaching is just as valid now as it was uh, four thousand years ago when we're preparing a just society. Um, we, we, we should become the best of bosses and the best of servants, okay? Uh, and there's also then that connection that, that we have with, with God. God has purchased us, didn't knock us on the head, okay? And, uh, and the relationship that we have with our master is one of love, but with this, this relationship that we have this, with this master is one of generosity and blessing. That we, we, we gain things somehow even while serving, although we don't deserve anything, yet, uh, yet we do. We can never work off our debt, yet the debt is indeed paid. Um, uh, when you get to the year of release, all debts, debts are paid, which is an incredible, incredible blessing. And your debt, different size to mine, and yet uh, they all come under the same 
the same ruling. All debts get cancelled, uh, which is a great blessing. All right. Any other comments? That we, uh... Aaron, which is that verse? Um, I think it, it was Yeshua that said it, that don't expect to be, to be thanked by doing our work. Yeah. Because it's just our duty. Sounds rude, I know, but it's true. It's true. It's a true. It's a a, uh, Yeshua says it in Luke. He says, uh, "All you can do is to say we are we are but slaves. We have only done our duty, Uh, and which is our. We need to have that uh, heartfelt response, knowing that the master has love, has compassion, has." Uh, uh, will fulfill all obligations to cancel debts and all those kinds of of things, um, which is a great blessing. All right. Luke 17.10. Is that where it is? Luke 17.10. There you go. That's a good one. All right. For those in podcast land, Luke 17.10. Can I say, uh, as a seminary student who's had to go into some student debt, if someone were to offer me Hey, seven years of service where I provide for you and your family and all your debts are over, I would gladly run headlong into that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All debts are off. Yeah, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Allow me to go buy a house just before we get into that. Okay. Uh, but when, when this time of the, the Shemitah is coming close, then the, the value of um, the slave, the value of the property begins to diminish because um, you calculate from the distance to the time of the Shemitah and so also you put your price in. Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to buying slaves, you buy them with a different price. That's, yeah, in that respect, yes, that's true. All right. So uh, after talking about uh, slavery and uh, the, the, the Shemitah cycle, um, Moses is now going to jump into uh, festivals, okay, the three big ones. And so next week we, we discuss the, uh, the pilgrimage festivals of Passover, Sukkot, and Shavuot. And uh, we'll see um, what Moses does. Because he's already given these rules, and they're very heavily defined in Leviticus and in Exodus. Let's see what Moses does again with these. Okay? We've watched him now take the Torah, okay? he's, he's got rules, and how he modifies them, how he expounds on them, how he emphasizes certain parts, just to make sure that it becomes very applicable uh, and very much uh, the Torah belev, uh, Torah of the heart. So if you want to read ahead, read up uh, Deuteronomy 16, and then jump back into the other uh, passages in Leviticus uh, and see and see what Moses is doing. What is he leaving out, and uh, what is he adding in? Right. Okay, guys, thank you very much for a great study. Thank you very much, Aaron. Shabbat shalom. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.